Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning we're wrapping up our sermon series we've been in over the summer on the church. And it's been a real pleasure for me to bring the Word of God uh, week by week to you over the summer. And I'm grateful for those that have uh, filled this spot when I've been gone. I'm grateful to those that have preached the Word in our evening services through our Ordinary Faith um, series. Over the course of this summer, we've addressed a lot of very specific things about the church. We've talked about the fact that we all have various gifts and functions, and we've talked about what some of those functions might be. We've talked about how the church needs fathers and it needs mothers. We've, we've talked about um, the necessity to embrace distinctions as a church, how God is a God of distinction, and so we can't live rejecting distinctions and be faithful in our walk. We've talked about the Great Commission and how God wants us to carry the gospel outward, and um, we've talked about different aromas of what the church should smell like. We, sh- we should smell like a, like a home, like a family that is grateful. We should, we should have the smell of forgiveness, right? We, we are not bitter. We don't have anger, resentment, or hatred against other people because we know what Jesus has done in our hearts. He's removed that. He's forgiven us. How can we not forgive our brother? And though we've talked about a lot of specific things throughout the course of the summer, there's an overarching point, like a meta point, that I've tried to make again and again, and that is the fact that we all together, bottom floor and balcony, are together a church family. The church is a family. And yet, I want to say, we've said this again and again and again over the course of the summer, we are a family This room is a family, and yet this room, all of us together, is not the family. We are not the family. We are a family, and we are a very specific and unique part of the family of God. And yet the family of God goes far beyond this room, far beyond us. We have an extended family. They're all over the world. We have brothers and sisters in every continent, all around the globe. The scripture says every tongue, tribe, people, nation, Afghanistan, China, Africa, we have Atlanta, down the street at Westgate Chapel. The church is greater than any one church. Again, that's part of the joy of joining other churches as you have the opportunity. For as exciting and wonderful or for as trying and hard as any specific time or season in a local church might be, We must remember that God is sovereign, he's sovereign, he's in control, and he's building and guiding and beautifying his church. It's something much bigger than we will ever see with our own eyes in this life. The church, well, how do we define what the church is? The church is all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the history of the world, all those who are living right now, all those who are going to come after us, all those who have come before us, everyone until that great and final day, and there will be a last day, when Jesus comes again and claims the church, his bride, 
and takes her to be with himself. The church is fathers and mothers and grandparents and widows and singles and children and and those that we haven't known, stillborns and miscarriages that Jesus loves and died for. All those who have gone before us, all those that will come after us from every tribe, people, language, and nation. The church is precious and wonderful. I hope that over the course of the summer, like me, you have come to appreciate this gift that Jesus has given to, to each one of us in a new way. What a privilege it is to be part of this church family. And I want to say this, this is what we're going to f- focus on in a way today. There's coming a day when this big old family, a lot of people whom we will never meet this side of heaven, is coming a day when we're going to have a family reunion. And I know some of you growing up, that might sound like a bad thing. You've gone to family reunions, it's the drag of the summer. You've got to go out to Hicksville and you've got to sit in the heat. No pond, no pool, no nothing. Just my great-grandma's casserole, you know. No, it's nothing like that. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's glory. It's joy. It's, 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 the church is going to be together. And we're going to be living out eternity together before the throne of God. Worshiping, praising, singing, casting our offerings, our crowns before his throne. No more sin, pain, tears, suffering, sickness. Only joy, only joy, only glory, only worship. This is our future. And so as we wrap up this series, I want to talk this last Sunday about kind of that day, but we're, we're going to talk about worship. So that's, that's what we're going to heaven to do. I want to talk about worship with you. We are a family that anticipates this great family reunion of heaven. And when we get there, we're going to worship. Therefore, worship is really of huge significance. It's of huge importance to us right here and now while we're in flesh and blood, while we are this side of heaven. I've been reading through Revelation with my family uh, at the dinner table, and it is so full of heavenly worship scenes. As I was thinking about this last message, I thought, I just want to read a couple of them briefly to us to help frame in our minds on the Word of God. So would you stand with me? We're going to read Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. We're going to read Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6. You can flip there if you have your, your, your Bibles. They'll also be on the screen behind me. This is the Word of God, the vision that John saw on the island of Patmos from God. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every tribe, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, And palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In Revelation 19, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his, judge, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her, her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah, 
her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great you are. And we look forward to that day when you will be revealed in greater measure still. We see dimly now. And yet here you are. You've told us that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are with them. And we thank you that you're here with us. We thank you for giving us your spirit. And we thank you for your word. Direct my words, and I pray that the thoughts of our minds and hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're addressing a topic like worship, and worship is a topic that you could say so many things about. You could go to so many different areas. This morning in our time together, I want to make a couple of points about how um, worship relates to us as a church family and individual members of a family. First, we're going to talk about how we were created to worship. That's why God made us. Made us to worship Him. The second thing we're going to talk about is for as great as our worship on a personal, private, individual basis goes with the Lord, for as great as that is, corporate worship, congregational worship, public worship, is even greater. That might be a new thought to you. We're going to talk about that. That's point number two. And finally, we're going to close by talking about how we should approach our worship together. How should we approach this great, great opportunity that we're given by God every single week? So first, we were created to worship. This is a striking reality. Maybe some of you uh, haven't grown up in the church and you've never had that thought before in your life. Maybe some of you grew up in the church And so you think, oh, I go there every Sunday. But maybe you don't grasp the depth of the reality of that idea, that you and I, we were created to worship. My family has a tradition, and the tradition is that every child gets their first knife, their first little pocket knife at the Smoky Mountain Knife Works factory down near Pigeon Forge. And that's just something we started with Micaiah, and it's worked its way down, and a few weeks ago, we were near there, and um, Lucia was getting a knife. And so we went to the, the, the knife work store, and she was attracted, of all the knives in that place, she was attracted to uh, the wall of Swiss Army knives because they had just an entire rainbow plethora of colors on the wall, just every sort of knife color you can imagine under the sun. And there was a certain category of pink and purple just down the wall, and it was like a magnet. You know, all these Spyderco, Benchmade, all these fan, ooh, right over here to the little three-inch Swiss Army knife. She ended up picking a, a pink camouflaged Swiss Army knife. How many of you guys own a Swiss Army knife? Yeah, a good number of you. How many of you remember the very first time you got a knife? I do. I, I think most boys do. It's a cool thing. I, I still have my very first Swiss Army knife. And my aunt bought it for me. 
And she, the cool thing is she was actually doing some biking over in France, or I think she went into Switzerland. She ended up buying this Swiss Army knife in Switzerland, brought it back for me, and I remembered when she gave it to me. I just thought it was the coolest thing. I still have it to this day. You know, the cool thing about Swiss Army knives is they have so many tools. I mean, I just got a couple new ones for my kids, and they're counting the tools, and I'm trying to tell them not to lose the toothpick and the tweezers, and they're just, there's certain tools on there. There's a tool I just learned what it was for. Apparently, it's for punching holes in leather. I always wondered what the little pointy thing with the hole in it was for. I was told it was for fishing growing up as a boy. I thought, fishing. So apparently, it's to put a thread into and poke holes in leather with. It's got a lot of tools, a lot of tools can be the case that when you hear me say that we were created for worship, you can agree, but you think of it much like we all think of a Swiss Army knife. Sure, I was created for worship, but I was also created to lead and to build and to grow and to be productive and successful and to make something great for myself, for my family, for my church, for my business. But what I'm saying is, not that you were created with the capacity to worship. No, I'm saying that God designed us with a purpose in mind, and that main purpose, the big blade on that Swiss Army knife, the main thing he he created us to do was to worship. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether Thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. For him how? For his glory, that it might declare his praise. There's a scene in Revelation chapter 4 in which those 24 elders that we just read about in our passages fall down before the throne of God. And they declare, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. These elders are declaring a truth about God. God is worthy of receiving glory and honor. He is worthy of receiving worship from all of his creation. Remember, we're told that if we don't praise, even the rocks will cry out. It's a big idea, isn't it? We were created to worship. We were created as worshipful beings. Like a Swiss army knife, we can do many things, but the primary thing that we're called to do, created to do, is to worship. And yet, I say that, and we look around, and we see a lot of people who don't worship the Lord. We might doubt this reality when we say, I I, I believe you, Nathan, but then as you look at the world, and you look at maybe some of your relationships, it seems like that's not really, that truth isn't playing out in your own experience, and What do you make of that? Did God really create us to worship? We need to remember that God created man to worship. He created man with a heart that is designed to worship, with affections that have a gravitational pull towards worship, but we aren't as he created us to be at the beginning, are we? Because of the entrance of sin into the world, And sin into our own hearts, our worship is perverted. It is misdirected. The aim is misguided. So instead of all people joining together to worship together, the one living and true God, mankind worships in all sorts of idolatrous ways. Romans says, For mankind exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They're worshipping and serving created things, not the great creator. Has mankind been created by God for worship? Absolutely. That's why it's sin when we don't. Do all people worship God? No, obviously not. But, but, do all people worship? Absolutely. All people worship. Because of sin, it's often misguided, it's misdirected. The aim of our worship is at things that it should not be. But all of us, every person on the planet, worships. They can't help but worship because that is what they were created to do. God has created people to worship. All people are designed this way. And so, connecting this idea back to that of family, every family, every single one worships something. Money, education, status, cars and racing, Ohio State football, entertainment, politics, social media, power, the living and the true God. Families worship. They often worship together. You can see that what fathers and mothers worship, what they value, what is worship? We're not going to get into that too much. I think many of us understand what worship is, but worship is valuing something more than everything else. What a father and mother worship and value and love and put at the, at the very top, the kids will follow suit. Worship is a family affair. It's a family affair. It's always been that way. This family worships God. We worship God. Our worship of God is primary, and it's what we've been created to do. Man's chief end is to, uh, main purpose, chief end just means our main purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Here's what this means. Here's what this means for all of us. The thing of most importance in your life is not building your company in order to sell it for a huge profit. It's not having a large, plump retirement fund. It's not being able to travel and see the world. It's not having a job that you feel fulfilled by. It's not getting what you want or having an easy life. It's not having children that are well-dressed and know how to act the part in front of others. It's not reaching a certain threshold of education. It is this. The thing of most importance in your life and in my life is the worship of God. That is why God has created you. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, college class, manual labor, cooking, raising children, paying bills, working in your yard, talking with your coworker, in whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. To live in this way, to live in any other way other than this way, is to be like a CEO of some company who is brought in for a very specific purpose. And the purpose is to raise profits for the shareholders and to break through growth barriers that the company's been coming up against. That's why this guy has been brought in. That's his purpose. The problem is that most mornings, as he drives his car into the parking lot, he notices that there's trash on the lawn. And he notices that there's gum stuck to the sidewalks and that the lobby windows are smudged. And most of the time, most days, he actually never makes it up to his office. Never actually gets to work on what he was hired to do because he's busy focusing on, on all those little things down at the bottom. His day is consumed with picking gum off the sidewalk. 
And the thing he was hired to do, his purpose is not being fulfilled. He's not engaging with it. He's not touching it. Because he's looking down at all the menial things that actually mean nothing in the end. What I want us to realize is that the world is loud. It's always seeking to compete with God for our attention. The world is never neutral. It's not like the cosmic game of capture the flag with the no man's land in the middle. There's not the world of, and the armies of Satan and gods and then the, the earth is like a, is a nebulous territory. No, it's not neutral. Satan is always competing for our attention, for our affections, for our time, for our prioritization, for our money and our worship. He's always throwing trash out onto the lawn, sticking bubblegum on the sidewalk. And to pair with this, it's not just Satan who's tempting us. We, we know if we have a conscience about us in our hearts that we are prone to wander. We are prone to look at that gum on the sidewalk and to not ever get up to the office to work, to do the thing that he purposed us to do. We must remember that our worship of God is not simply a facet of our lives. It's not that, that, that ull or that pokey thing with the hole for punching through leather. That's not what our worship is. It is the aim of our lives. It's not just a facet. It's, a, it's not a spoke in the wheel. It is the, it is the road that the wheel is driving down. That is worship. We were created to worship God. And at the end, when all the kingdoms of this world, all the empires return to what they were once, that is dust, the one thing that's going to be revealed as having mattered as having been important is this question did you worship the lord as god was your life directed toward worshiping him was it devoted to glorifying him you were created to worship the lord you were created to worship the lord we lose sight of this so often we don't necessarily forget it but it becomes in the background of our minds and it is primary it is central the second point is that for as great as our worship experiences are in private, and we, I hope we all worship the Lord in private by ourselves, our corporate, our public worship is greater. Public worship is the greatest form or expression of worship. Now, this might be a hard truth for some of you to, to, to swallow. I have heard many times people talk about the greatest worship they ever experience is in the car when nobody's watching them and they have their windows tinted so nobody can even see them through the windows and they've got their music loud and they're singing and I've heard people say things like that. I've heard people that I love talk about the the deepest connection, the greatest worship they ever had with God is in some natural environment, not a concrete box, just the top of the smoky mountains looking out over the night sky and And I've had great experiences of worship that aren't in the context of a congregation, that aren't public. And yet, and yet, I think Scripture teaches that corporate worship is more significant. We're going to go, I thought of a few reasons why from the Bible that this is the case. But culturally, we need to understand this when we're, if you think, I don't know, I don't agree. I think that my own worship is often deeper. You've got to remember that we're all individualistic. We live in an individualistic nation, and so we prize me and what is private to me, right? We live in in, in a world where we all have our own soundtracks, and they're wireless, and they go right into our ears, right? That's the world we live in. We're very individualistic. We are also highly suspicious of, of forms and 
by and large, we value things that seem organic and spontaneous and natural. This is, this is, this is our culture today, and we are a part of that. And uh, so we need to understand our minds may be prone to seeing corporate anything as being less than private. But that's not the case. We were created to worship, and we should value public worship even over private worship. I'll say it again. We should value corporate worship over private worship. Why? Because God does. He does. Psalms tell this to us. Psalm 87, it says, It's the glorious things of thee are spoken passage. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord delights in public worship of his gathered people in Jerusalem on Mount Zion where the temple was, where all his people would come from around and gather at certain times to worship as a corporate body, even more than all the private worship of the individuals or the families that will worship throughout the dwelling places of Jacob. That's what that verse is saying. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love it when we read his word and engage him in prayer with our families or on our own. That's not what it means at all. It simply means that he loves public worship even more. I'm not diminishing one. I'm just saying that the other is greater. He loves it even more, and so should we. I want to give a few reasons why this is the case, and I'm not going to go into lots of detail, but I want to make the point because I think this is something that we don't think about often. And I think at, at large in society, this idea would be rejected. So I have a few points um, to, to support this. First, from the earliest time, God wanted a people who would declare the greatness of his name through words and witness of lives together. It was not good for man to be alone. Now, we always think about that statement in relation to Eve. But this statement relates not only to Adam and his need for companionship, it also speaks to God's desire for his glory to be expressed in the context of human communities, in the context of families that would grow, ultimately lead to the nation of Israel, ultimately lead to a kingdom of holy priests, uh, a, a holy nation, priest of, uh, a, a nation of priests to the Lord, Hebrews, which is the church. We see the same idea represented by Paul in the New Testament when he refers to the, the church family as the temple of the living God, the, that place where God's glory came down in a special way. It's not to say that all the other worship was insignificant or unnecessary. Absolutely not. But his glory came down at the temple. So from the earliest of times, God wanted this. We see this. Second, God is more glorified by public worship than private. God is glorified by us when we acknowledge that he is glorious and he is most glorified when this announcement, when this proclamation, when this confession is most public. This is obvious. If you read the Psalms, it's absolutely obvious. All throughout the Psalms, it makes this point again and again. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let it be loud. Let you Grab instruments that are loud and bang them together as we confess with our voices and with the brass and timbrels and with dancing that he is God. Glorify his name together. Magnify the Lord with me. Again, I'm not diminishing Daniel up in his room by himself praying to the Lord. But we're saying that God is even more glorified in public worship. 
Let us glorify his name together. Magnify the Lord with me. Third, there's more of the Lord's presence in public worship than in private. He is present with his people in public worship in a special way. And so God says in Exodus chapter 20, you shall make an altar for me. And you shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. And every place where you're doing this, making these sacrifices, as I've just been instructing you, I will come down and I will bless you. In other words, God is saying, where I'm publicly worshipped, I will come and I will not come empty-handed. Does this mean that God's presence is not with us in private worship? No. Not at all. But more of his presence is found here in corporate worship than in private. The Lord has a dish for every particular one of us. Every soul who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone has a dish. But when we come together and when we meet, there's a variety. And the whole table is filled with dishes. And the presence of the Lord in public worship makes a spiritual feast. Fourth, public worship is more edifying than private. In private, here's what I mean. You, it's more edifying in public than it is in private. Here's what I mean. In private, you provide for your own good. But in public worship, you do good for both yourself and for your neighbor. We're edifying not just ourselves, but the people down the road and the people in the back and the people on the platform. So this is not... This is not a performance. This is, you run from performance. You don't have anything to do with performance. This is us ministering to each other. So those of you in the back row, the Jameses, right, singing with, with, in the very back, right in front of the sound booth, are edifying us and ministering to us just as I pray that we are ministering to them and leading them. So we minister to each other. It's more edifying. This is why Paul would say that We are to speak to one another. He doesn't say speak to God. He says speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's talking about the context of the church gathering. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord. It's to God too, but it is speaking to each other. And when you come together, each one has a hymn, a song, a revelation, a tongue, and an interpretation Let all things be done for the building up. We aren't to approach worship like it's just me and God. You aren't to approach worship like the two-foot-by-two-foot space you occupy in front of your chair is your own little private elevator to God. This is not individualistic worship. This is corporate. We're in it together. We're speaking. We're joining our voices into one voice to magnify our great God together. And we're encouraging each other through it. We strengthen and encourage each other in our worship. If you separate, you know, it's grilling season. We're, we're kind of getting into my favorite grilling season, the fall. And we have a, grass, a gas grill now, but we used to have a charcoal grill. And if you divide those coals on the grill, there's a learning curve to, to grilling, right? You know, and you know, on charcoal, you, you have to kind of take your kicks before you can get the hamburgers off on time and they taste good. And so one of the lessons I learned early on is it's really important to keep all those coals piled up so that they retain heat. If you divide coals and spread them all out onto the grill evenly at the beginning, 
the heat is going to dissipate or it's never even going to generate. The fire is going to die. But when they're all piled together, the heat is preserved. They help each other. And it's the way with us too. This is, this is what we are in worship. When we're together, we're spurring each other on in zeal, in faith, in boldness, in worship. That's fourth. Fifth, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism, have been given to public worship, not private. And we talked about the sacraments a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to elaborate on that again here. But the reality is that both baptism and the Lord's Supper aren't things that were given to just any individual to go off and do on their own. We don't participate in communion as a family at home. The sacraments were both given in the context of the church and those leading the church. There's a lot of misguided thought on this today. We need to be clear the sacraments are for the church in the context of church and not even just, hey, we're getting together on the camping trip, let's break bread and have communion. It's in the context of corporate worship. That's what we believe. That's where the sacraments have been given and placed. We don't ascend spiritually to the heavenlies in private worship like we do in public worship. That's what happens in communion. It's somewhat mysterious, but we are with Christ. It's not just a remembrance of Christ. It's not just a token. It's not just a memorial where we have a, a, a reflect on his, on his substitutionary death for our sake. It is that. It is that. It's also looking forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven where we will think about that great day when we're, we are seeing face to face. But it's, it's actually more than both those two things, too. We believe that we in a, are with Christ, that our spirits are with him in a special way, and the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, baptism, have been given to public worship. Sixth, I, I'm, I'll stop here today. Um, we never come closer to heaven than we do when our family worships. We never come closer to heaven. In heaven, so far as Scripture defines, describes it to us, there is nothing done in private, nothing done in secret. It's all public. The angels and the heavenly hosts will gather with all of the church. It's that great reunion I talked about at the beginning. All of Christians all throughout time, and we will worship, we'll sing praises to him who sits on the throne, the lamb that was slain forever. forever. Heaven is the public worship of God eternally. That's what it is. And listen, I, I know that I'm preaching to a family that is not haphazard in church attendance. We don't plan on people being here every third week. And I know that we love the Lord, and I know that we love being together, and that that spirit is here. It's been given to us as a gift by God, and it's a precious thing. But here's how I want to challenge us. I want us to live out every day Remembering that we were created for worship and there's no greater calling. There's nothing of more significance. There's nothing of more importance than our worship of God. And I want us to agree with God that our public worship together, when this family gathers, is the most important time of our week. It's the closest thing we get to heaven. And if we believe those two things, our lives are going to be impacted by them. It's going to impact the way that we live. It's going to impact the way we prioritize our lives. I want to remind us of this because I believe that many of you may agree, but a whole lot of junk can get in the way. I believe these things, but I'm, junk is constantly being thrown in my, in my path. It's the gum on the sidewalk and the trash in the yard. 
And it can take our eyes and our hearts off this reality. There can be a lot of temptations that attack our public worship. And by and large, honestly, this, what I'm saying today isn't really the way that many people think today. It, they think it, church is a nice thing to do, it, but it's quite optional. We want, our, we want our lives and our voices to testify to the truth. We want to believe this truth. We want to live our lives by this truth. And we want to share this truth with the world. It's important stuff. This is the Word of God. It's the truth from the Word of God. If we were created to worship, and our public worship as a church family is even more significant than our private worship, then we must put thought into how we approach it. We're going to close with this. Remember that God is not unopinionated when it comes to how we approach Him in worship. God spends many, many, many chapters of the Old Testament laying out exactly how he wanted Israel to worship. Some of those things have changed, but there's many truths that we can still take and apply to us uh, by extrapolation. Some of those things apply to us directly and specifically, but the idea that God is very concerned about worship, he doesn't take it lightly, and neither should we, is is a truth that just screams from, from the Pentateuch at us. So, um, I want to talk about how we approach them rightly, and I want to end with four points about how we approach public worship. And they're fairly simple. I'm, I'm trying to be practical here. First, we have to prioritize it. And we've already sort of made this point by talking about how important it is, but the reality is that the world is clamoring for us to put other things in front of worship. We must make it an absolute priority. It's not optional. When we're faced between extracurricular events social functions, races, and public worship. Public worship better win the day. You're going to have to make a decision between weekends at the lake house and public worship. Which is going to be more important? Which is going to last through the fire? Jesus is all for nice homes, isn't he? He's all about nice homes. In fact, he's making you one. But if he finds out that you value that home more than you value his worship, he's not going to be happy about it. Of course, we should prioritize corporate worship because we cherish it. That's the reality. We should cherish worship. This is the closest thing we get to heaven, this side of the grave. It's not just coming to church. It's cherishing the church and cherishing the worship of God and his people. In J.C. Ryle's Holiness, we read um, a book called Holiness probably five or six years ago now as a church. And in that book, uh, Ryle makes the point, a very helpful point, when he says that you won't enjoy heaven if you don't enjoy seeking holiness on earth. He says if you don't seek holiness on earth, if it's nothing that you strive for, what makes you think you're even going to like it in heaven? Because that's kind of what heaven's about, makes sense. Same thing holds true with worship. The reality is if we prioritize other things over corporate worship on this earth, are we really going to enjoy heaven? Because that's what we're promised in heaven. I was encouraged, I just want to share, a few weeks ago I spoke with a friend, and he told me that as a family they'd made a decision that they weren't going to be doing sports on Sundays anymore. And it was a hard decision to make because it has implications that are, go past him. It goes down to the family, to the kids. I'm a father. I know how that is. It's hard. It's a real sacrifice. It can be a sacrifice. But God is no man's debtor. He is so pleased. He is so pleased 
when we prioritize and cherish and value and love the things that he most loves. And we remember that Jesus laid his life down for the church. And when we agree with God, when our lives walk in agreement with God, he won't only take care of us in the end, he will, he will make our lives so happy. So I hope that we cherish what God cherishes. We must prioritize worship. Second, prioritizing worship is the first. Second, we must prepare for worship. If something is important to us, we prepare for it. If you have a big presentation at work, hopefully you're not walking into that thing planning on winging it. If you have a trip that your family is excited to take, you've been planning it for a while, hopefully you've been putting some prep and effort into like putting aside some money so that when the trip finally comes, you actually have the money to take the trip. Or maybe developing some sort of itinerary so you don't fly across the U.S. and then land and think, I wonder where the hotels are. We plan for things that are important to us. We prepare for things that are important. So practically speaking, what, what might some things be as we approach worship? How do we prepare for worship? Well, we, main, we need to maintain hearts that are not hypocritical during the week, right? If we aren't reading, speaking with the Lord, confessing our sins to the Lord during the week, um, we are not going to be able to minister to our, our brothers and sisters. Our, we're going to be hypocrites in worship. We can't do that. Our lives during the week need to look and match like our lives on Sunday do. We need to live honestly. So living, confessing your sins, seeking God in private worship. Again, we're not demoting private worship here, guys. We're encouraging it. We're only saying that something is even greater than that. That's good news. It's good news. Setting aside time on Saturdays so that Sunday isn't crazy and stressful. I'm a dad, and, uh, you know, we have, Aliyah and I have children, and the work that we do, the small amount of work we do even on a Saturday night to prepare for worship helps in a big way. It just does. We all know what it, we don't want to be coming to worship angry with our wives, screaming at our kids, you know, kids that are half-clothed in the van, pulling stuff on, unbathed, smell. We want to we teach our kids about valuing worship by even helping them to start doing that at young ages, which means preparing for it by getting ready for Sunday before Sunday hits. Uh, make sure you get to church early so you're not rushed, right? Can you imagine, like, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, having forgot it was his day, and you know, get, the, get the tassels on, get the rope around my foot. You know, I think that might be a myth. Yeah, I can't remember. But can you imagine such a thing? Absolutely not. This is not a joke. I know it's joyful. We, we should never confuse joy with being jokey or comical about worship. It's a serious thing. So we want to make sure that we're prepared and that our minds are focused. I, this is a plug. Listen, in a few weeks, we're starting a new series, Truth in Life, be here on time for that. That matters. It matters. Before worship, take a few minutes and come in. You know, this, this morning was a busy morning. People were coming in. I, I, I've been there. But make a point of coming in, sitting, and thinking about the Lord, praying for the worship service. Again, this is not a, uh, this is not a, a sport that happens up here. And you guys watch. You know that. But pray for the service. Prepare. So we need to prepare for worship. Third, it may go without saying, but you've got to participate. You've got to participate in worship. Throw yourselves into the worship of God. There's not a single element of this service, songs, prayer, tithes and offerings, sermon, where we are to be unengaged, where we don't have an active role to play. We are to participate with our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our voices. Worship, like gratitude, flows out of the heart 
but it manifests in our voices, our hands, our knees, when we bow, the attentiveness of our ears, the focus of our senses. The Psalms are full of commands to praise and worship the Lord and to do so at fever pitch, not half-heartedly, to engage with all of our might, not to hold back, not to be reserved. As much as possible, we should worship on earth like we will one day worship in heaven, unrestrained by pride, by fear of other people's opinions, by tiredness. We should participate because, as we said earlier, our worship serves to encourage and strengthen each other as well as to glorify God. So third, we, we got to participate. Fourth, we should come with expectation. What do you expect out of Sunday? We're not talking just coming to church every week. We're talking cherishing the church. Why? For all the reasons God told us we should cherish the church. And part of the reasons we should cherish the church is how he uses it to change us, to mold us, to bless us, to grow us. So do you come every week just thinking about the crock pot and whether you plugged it in or not and whether your son stinks because he didn't put on deodorant? Or do you come with expectations for how God is going to work here in this time? It's a very short time every week, but just because it's a short time doesn't mean it's insignificant. It's the most significant. Do we expect great things from God? We serve a God that's powerful and personal. His spirit is at work when we gather together. His word, which is living and active, and convicts and encourages us and is read when it's read and when it's preached. So here are just a few uh, helpful things. I hope these are helpful as we think about our approach to worship as a, as a church family, but as individual members of it. We have to prioritize it. We have to prepare for it. And that looks very practical. Uh, we have to participate in it. We have to expect great things from God through it. So I want to close by just reading one more passage from Revelation. In fact, it's the section that we, it's the Revelation 19, 6 and 7. This is where we left off in the scripture reading. I want to read it to you. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. As a church family, our weekly worship anticipates this great reunion. Week by week, we're training our bodies and our minds to bow before the throne of God. We're training our hearts to love his word. We're training our voices to sing his praises, and we're training our stomachs to enjoy his feasts. We're getting ready for the family reunion. Would you pray with me? And then we'll sing some songs of worship. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us into this great family. We thank you for preparing, uh, sending your son to, to, to shine the light in our lives and in our darkness and to bring us out into the joy of your salvation. Fathers, we, we anticipate heaven, Lord. Your son taught us to pray, saying, come quickly. May your kingdom come. But while we're here and while you choose to delay your coming, we pray that your will would be done in our lives in this way. May we remember that worship is our main purpose. And may we rejoice and cherish our corporate worship which you've given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.